Let's, uh, let's pray together. Father, thank you for the grace that you've given to us and your Son. Thank you, Father, that you have given us one that is sufficient in every way, perfect, and yet humble, taken on flesh and by his life and his death and his resurrection and now his ascension and enthronement, we can rest at ease knowing that he is established at your right hand far above all role, authority, power, and dominion for the, for the church to be the church in this age and time and place. Father, may, may we rest in your sovereign hand in this life. May we, may we find great peace and satisfaction in all that you are, all that you're doing, all that you will do. Father, we, thank, we are thankful that you are not bound by times being good or times being bad, that you work in both, that if we go up to the heights of heaven, you are there. If we fall to the depths of Sheol there, your right hand will hold us fast. Thank you that we are so cherished, that we are so cared for, that we are so loved, that Father, not even a sparrow falls to the ground apart from your will, and yet how much more important are we? You've numbered the hairs on our heads. You know all things before they come to be. That your purposes and your establish your purposes and your plans are established before all time. That you will achieve uh, your purpose, which is your glory and the joy of your saints in that glory. So be glorified and honored today as we look to you as our hope and our shield for all things. We pray this in the name of Jesus. Amen. You know, my mom and dad told me very early on when you're in a public place or you're in mixed company, uh, two topics to avoid is religion and politics. And so I think I'm going to do the unthinkable today and talk about both of them. And um, I wore my bipartisan tie, of course. <laughs> so I didn't do that on purpose. Someone pointed it out to me, and so I thought I'd run with it. Uh, I want to speak with charity and clarity today. I, I know that I'm going to probably disappoint many of you. Uh, because I will not take a stand that you think is as strong as I should take. And, and then I'll probably disappoint the balance of you because I'm probably taking a stand that's too strong for the stand you think I ought to take. I, I do want to speak about politics though, in a broader sense. So Jesus was political in a broader way. So politics just means life in the city. That's what the Greek word means, life in the city. How do we live together? That's what politics are, narrow politics. At least a narrow definition has to do more with elections and, and uh, officials and particulars of government. And Jesus wasn't narrowly political, but he was broadly political because he did, with, he did deal with life in the city. And that's my desire. In the, and, and what I'm hoping to do is, is strike a balance to try to pull back a little bit from this polarizing, angry rhetoric that we have found ourselves in as we bear for as we move toward the um, election on Tuesday. Many of you, I think, are very frustrated in the current administration. You, uh, the, the positions that the Obama administration have taken and have advanced are antithetical to many of, you, many of the things that you think are right and appropriate and proper. And uh, Perhaps some of you, too, are, are very worried that Obama wouldn't be uh, in office in his administration. And uh, speaking of more conservatism and restriction in your mind of perceived rights or even greater military intervention in the world. And so, so we're struggling over these administrations. I, I want to step back. I don't want to preach about an election because, you know, there have been a lot of elections already in my life. There's going to be, if I continue to live, a lot more elections for these kings. They come and they go. 
And uh, I, I want to speak about how to live in the midst of all this. I don't want to just preach because many of us, I think, if your candidate wins on Tuesday, then you're happy next Sunday. And if your candidate loses this Tuesday, you're going to be sad next Sunday. And frankly, my feelings and emotions and, and my joy in this world are not tied directly to a presidential candidate or any man. But, but they're tied to the kingdom of God to which we belong. And so I, I want to teach us how to live as citizens of a kingdom in a world of men. And, and I want to try, to try to show how those two are relating to one another rather than just becoming myopic and looking at an election per se. So um, I invite questions after the sermon. Uh, I would love to take any questions and elders as well. Um, if I raise issues that I'm not able to handle properly, the text I've chosen, I, I could speak on it for hours. It's so profound. I mean, I mean, a lot of Western governmental thought has come from this passage. It's massive, and yet it's very, very brief. And so uh, I would ask you to listen with charity, and uh, I pray that I will speak clearly. So let's look at the passage in Matthew chapter 22, and we'll look at 15 to 22. Matthew 22, 15 to 22. Read along with me if you would. Jesus is speaking, and he says, um, well, it'll be about Jesus. Matthew records, Then the Pharisees went and plotted how to entangle him in his words. And they sent their disciples to him along with the Herodians, saying, Teacher, we know that you are true and teach the way of God truthfully. And you do not care about anyone's opinion, for you are not swayed by appearances. Tell us then what you think. Is it lawful to pay taxes to Caesar or not? But Jesus, aware of their malice, said, Why put me to the test, you hypocrites? Show me the coin for the tax. They brought him a denarius. And Jesus said to them, Whose likeness and inscription is this? They said, Caesar's. Then he said to them, Therefore render to Caesar the things that are Caesar's, and to God the things that are God's. When they heard it, they marveled, and they left him and went away. Okay, let me just try to set the context for you all. Last week of his ministry, last week of his life. It's Passover. Huge celebration, right? It's a, it, it's a, it's a week, it, it's a time, a celebration of major national patriotism and religious fervor. Now, Jesus had been having conflicts with the religious leaders up to this point. Immediate prior to, and, and there's going to be a collision. Actually, in chapter 22, there's four collisions with Christ and the leadership. Just read through the whole chapter. It's amazing. Everybody walks away stunned. And at the end of the chapter, nobody dares ask him a question anymore. And, and, and so there's going to be a collision. Now, part of the collision is exacerbated because of Jesus. In the passage immediately prior to ours, he tells this parable about a wedding feast. And the invited guests, presumably the nation of Israel, are now rejected and, in fact, the Gentiles, who were never invited, are now part of the feast. So the religious leadership is very angry because Jesus, this Messiah wannabe, is saying Israel is done with, now the kingdom's going to the whole world. So they're very, very challenged by that. And that's why they set this delegation. Now look at the players here. Two groups. One is the disciples of the Pharisees. In all likelihood, the Pharisees didn't go themselves, otherwise they'd be exposing their hand. It was a trap. They wanted to ensnare him. They wanted to entangle him. And so you're going to send people maybe he doesn't know. That way, keep the purpose 
of their questioning kind of secretive. But they send the Herodians, and we don't really know who these Herodians were, other than probably a group of people supporting Herod the king. They're more of a secularist. They want the, the rule of Herod to continue. It's an odd combination of people. I mean, you have the Herodians and you have the Pharisees, and they really are enemies of one another. But, but I'll tell you, there's a dark irony here that forces that are opposed to each other are willing to join in a premeditated attempt to use deceit to trap a man that they say teaches the way of truth. It seems very strange. It seems to give weight to that adage, the enemy of my enemy is my friend. And so these forces come together. Now what they do is they want to bait the hook. They want to catch Christ. And so they bait the hook with this question. You know, like a lure, a fisherman uses a lure, and it's kind of shiny to attract the attention of the fish. So it can be hooked. With the, it's a question. It's an ingenious question. It's intended to, to cause Christ to be alienated to someone, that, that someone has to have an issue with Christ. And the question seems simple enough. Is it lawful to pay taxes to Caesar? But there's more than that. They're really saying, is it lawful, is it right, is it proper for a Jew under God's authority to give his money to a government that is running and occupying his land? Is it right? Now, nobody likes to pay taxes. I mean, taxes caused a revolt 20 years prior to this event in Israel, and taxes caused a revolt 40 years later from this event that destroyed Jerusalem. I mean, I think we know in our country something about taxes and a revolt. So nobody likes to pay taxes. This tax was especially abhorrent because it was called a poll tax. And a poll tax is a tax on an individual. It wasn't for commerce. It wasn't for transportation. It was a tax because they were living. And it was on every adult Jew from 14 to 65. It was a horrible tax. But it was religiously and politically charged. I mean, politically charged, because what, what they were saying is that we are giving money, the occupied people are giving money to the Roman government to advance their purposes as they're ruling us. It was the epitome of subjugation. You are paying for your captors to hold you captive. I mean, they hated it. You can just imagine. But it was more than political. It was also religious. Because that coin, that denarius, it wasn't a big sum of money. It was only a day's wages. But it had an inscription and a portrait. The portrait was Caesar. And the inscription on the back was Tiberius Caesar, son of divine Augustus. He's a divine Lord. And Maximus Pontiff, or highest priest, is on the other side. So what it is, is it's a coin that is advancing the deification of an emperor as the highest priest. So to use that would be to cross at least both commandments, the first two. And so, so here you have this example of, of this designed question to alienate Christ, either from Rome or from the Jews. Now listen, if he said, don't pay the tax, then he would have been guilty of sedition, treason, and he would have run afoul with the Romans, perhaps leading to his death. If he says, hey, you ought to pay the tax, then of course he's going to run afoul with the nationalists. He's supporting a foreign government. So either he's a revolutionary to Rome or he's going to be a traitor and a collaborator and a fraud to Israel. It's kind of one of those, you know, heads I win, tails you lose 
you lose arrangements. You just can't win, right? But notice what Jesus says. I don't want you just to marvel at his wit. I want you to marvel at the wisdom with which he exercises when he says this. Now, he knows their maliciousness. He knows their hypocrisy. But, but he's not going to withdraw from the question. He's going to use their question to hook them, which is what he does. And that's why he says, render, he said, well, ask for a coin. Who's the inscription on it? It was obvious. It was clear. They said Caesar's. And so he says these words. Then render to Caesar what is Caesar's, and render to God what is God's. Now, the word render is important. Some of your texts may have give, but it's more than give. Render means to give back what is due. There is a debt. There is an obligation owed that, that we have a responsibility to pay back that which is due. You could have, hit a, you could have heard a pin drop. This is a, this is a bomb going off. Jesus in the temple of God is now going to just, he just hooked the Herodians and the Pharisees. He hooked the Pharisees because the Pharisees wanted a theocratic state. They didn't want any government. They didn't want Herod. They didn't want the Romans. God was over all. And Jesus is saying, pay back to Caesar what is due. So Jesus is validating Rome and the right of Rome to charge for taxes. That is big. He's also shutting down the Herodians who just think of a secular government and he's saying, you render to God what is God's. You give back to God. All of you, you owe to God, and you give back to him. That's what he's saying here. He shuts them both down. It's not an ingenious answer. It's a radical answer. It's a radical answer because what he's doing is he's ushering in a, a new way of thinking about government. That, that the people of the kingdom now understand that there is a human government that is under the authority of a divine government. They both exist. The government is not the enemy of God, even wicked governments, but they are servants of God. There is no wall of separation between church and state. They are integrated, that they are relating to one another, not as peers, but one subordinate to the other. This is huge. This is the book Augustine wrote, The City of God. The City of God is how do we as men of God, women of God, how do we live in the world of men? That these two kingdoms come and they clash, they interact. How do they relate to one another? That's what I want to explain to you today. So it's not just about election, if Romney or Obama wins. We have a responsibility first to God. And that responsibility to God is now to interact with the city of man. And so that's why he says, render to Caesar the things that are Caesar's, render to God the things that are God's. So let me explain to you what it means to render to Caesar. What does it mean to be a citizen of a kingdom in the city of man? What does it mean to render to Caesar the things that are Caesar's? You need to know this. And so it's simply this. First, that you would recognize government as ordained by God. That you would recognize government's right to exist. That in fact, it has been established when Jesus says, give back to Rome, give back to Caesar what is due Caesar, that he is establishing them as a rightful servant of God, that they're ordained of God, that they are not enemies of God, they're tools of God, they're instruments of God. 
Now you see this all the way back in creation. God establishes a man and woman, and he calls them to fill and to subdue. So in other words, he's establishing humans and a government. You see him establish a government of creation where the the stars and the planets are aligned with a certain order relating to one another. You see it in the home with the husband and the wife. You see it in parents and children. You see it in the church, elders and people. God has established governments throughout all of his creation. And he has established his governments to reflect his good authority and to reflect his divine authority. Even pagan governments, even governments that do not hold God to be true and holy and right, he has established them for his purposes. This is what was blowing the mind of the Pharisees. How could God use a pagan government? And yet Jesus says in John 19, 11, to Pilate, he says, you wouldn't have this authority. The implication is he did have it. But Jesus is saying you wouldn't have it unless it was given to you from above. He establishes what I'm establishing, which is that they have an authority under God. In fact, if you were to turn to Romans, now in Romans 13, let me just read some scriptures. Romans 13, 1-7, it's a little lengthy of a passage, but let me read it to you. And, uh, but you can also find it in 1 Peter chapter 2, 13-17. Here's what Paul writes. I believe, from Jesus' words here, let every person be subject to the governing authorities. There is no authority except from God, and those that exist have been instituted by God. Therefore, whoever resists the authorities resists what God has appointed, and those who resist will incur judgment. People of God, this was written about a pagan, a corrupt, an ungodly government. He says, for rulers are not a terror to good conduct, but to bad. Would you have no fear of the one who is in authority? Then do what is good, and you will receive his approval. For he is God's servant. He is God's deacon for your good. But if you do wrong, be afraid, for he does not bear the sword in vain. For he is a subject of God, an avenger who carries out God's wrath on the wrongdoer. Therefore, one must be in subjection, not only to avoid God's wrath, but also for the sake of conscience. For because of this you pay taxes, for the authorities are ministers of God, attending to this very thing. Pay to all what is owed to them, taxes to whom taxes are owed, revenue to whom revenue is owed, and respect to whom respect is owed, and honor to whom honor is owed. See, God has established a government for our good. God has established a government for the peace and the prosperity and the protection of people. Even in the preamble of our Constitution in 1787, read these words. They are to establish justice, ensure domestic tranquility, provide for the common defense, promote general welfare, secure blessings of liberty to ourselves and our posterity. That that is their purpose in us. Now, Obviously, there are governments that are not seeking to do this all the time. There are wicked governments. Is God pleased with these governments? Well, of course not. But they still accomplish his purposes. We're still called to submit. They will be judged. Hey, don't forget God's use of Nebuchadnezzar in the Old Testament. God uses Nebuchadnezzar to punish his own people, or Habakkuk, bringing in the Chaldeans to punish his own people. And then God punished them for overpunishing his people. God is sovereign over authority. He has established it. And the people in government need to be aware of this. We need to be aware of this. In fact, I was, uh, Charles uh, um, R.C. Sproul was giving an inaugural prayer at the inaugural address of the governor of Florida. 
And here's what he wrote. I felt very biblical, very bold. He says this, Good sir, today is your ordination day. He said this to the governor. You have received your mandate to govern not from the will of the people, but from Almighty God, who himself establishes government and calls you his minister. Not the minister of the church, but his minister as a guardian of the affairs of the state. And I remind you that you will be judged by him in how you carry out your duties. So we must, to render to Caesar the things that are Caesar's, we must recognize the authority of the state. We find ourselves submitting to it, obeying it. That secondly, we would not just recognize it, but we would obey the state. Even as it comes to taxes, that the laws that the state establishes, that we are called to obey. We are called to obey those laws, even when it comes to taxes. That we are not to shortchange, to take money under the table, that we pay our taxes. I want to remind you that our responsibility to obey the state and to even pay our taxes is even when our taxes are not used rightly or even advancing something that's wrong. That is not an excuse to not pay our taxes. That our responsibility to obey is not driven by their behavior. May I remind you that when Christ said to pay this denarius, to pay the poll tax, he knew that that poll tax was paying the Romans to pay their soldiers who would then execute him and kill all the other apostles as well. I mean, the Roman government didn't use their tax money for purposes of benevolence. Yes, they built roads, and yes, they did other things for the general population, but clearly it was not a godly government. And yet Jesus is saying, pay your taxes. Paul's saying the same thing. Peter's saying the same thing. So we want to obey our government. But, but, but then thirdly, we want to recognize the authority of the government. We want to obey the government. As a citizen of God, in this citizen of men, to render to Caesar, I am also supposed to be thankful for my government. I mean, we are called to be thankful for the services that they render to us. That, that We have roads that are kept up. We have police that protect us. We have law courts that establish justice. Not perfectly at all. I mean, because these governments are made up of humans, they'll never be perfect. But we're called to be thankful for that which is peaceable and passable in our land. If you don't think so, go drive in a third world country. You will be thankful for the DOT. I assure you. Or, or go get arrested in a foreign country. As much as you may disagree with the court systems and the languishing slowness of it, try being arrested in Turkey or in Syria or Lebanon. It would be incredibly dangerous. I think about Carol. Carol, my wife, is very diligent Whenever she sees an officer, a police officer, a military person, or a, or a um, fireman, she will thank them. Thank you for serving us this way. They are serving us. They are caring for us. And to those of you who work in the government, you are agents of God. You are to reflect his divine authority. You are to carry out your tasks as if God is your employer. Not the man that's sitting in the office but, but that God has called you to do this. We're also called to be prayerful. To be prayerful. I, you know, I can't imagine, in, in 1 Timothy, Paul writes these words, he says, he says, I urge you, first of all, that requests and prayers and intercession and thanksgiving be made for everyone, for kings and for all those in authority, that we may live peaceful and quiet lives in all godliness and holiness. That is good and pleases God our Savior. I wonder 
if the rhetoric out of the evangelical community would be different if we prayed as much as we complained over our political process and our political candidates. And I say that to my shame as well. It's the same thing as, as being thankful. I mean, I, I, felt, I felt the guilt associated with my joking about the governmental worker ethic. But I, but I was mindful of thinking, no, I want to be thankful. I want to be prayerful. I want to be peaceable. We are to be peaceable people. That we are not to engage in activities inappropriate or, or destructive to our government or to our fellow citizens. That we are calling, we're called to love our neighbor. And to love our neighbor means that we are peaceable people. Striving. Titus writes, remind the people to be subject to authorities and rulers, to be obedient and to be ready to do whatever is good. That's the call of the citizen of God in the kingdom of men. I would also say to you uh, that we're called to exercise our rights as citizens that we have a responsibility. Being a citizen of God's kingdom, in a kingdom of men, we're called to exercise our rights. That means we engage in politics. It means that we engage in public discourse and be willing to face the consequences associated with it. But we're called to engage these things in a public square. I would also say this has to do with the vote. I just want to speak a few words about this vote that we have. For me, the vote is an issue of stewardship, that you have a right to vote. I, 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 would, I, would, I would disagree with the person who says, um, I'm not going to vote because it doesn't really matter. That's not the issue. The issue of the outcome of your vote is secondary to your responsibility to God. For the person that says, I'm going to vote because we're going to win, you have a stewardship. We all exercise that the stewardship has been given to us by God to vote. Now, I'm not a one-issue type of guy. I want to look at a broader platform than just one issue. There are many important issues that we need to consider thoroughly and biblically and wisely that face us in in this current culture. There's issues of the right to life for the unborn. There is issues of immigration There are issues of the nature of marriage as God has explained it and as we have tried to redefine it. There are issues of international relationships. There's issues of the poor. There's issues, there's $1 trillion that the government is paying for the poor right now. It's not touching the problem. We have many, many issues facing us. So so I tend not to be a one-issue man, but but saying that, I recognize that not all issues are the same. That there are some issues more fundamental, I believe, to life. There are some issues that are more addressed in Scripture, that God's more clear on, that we can take a stronger stand on. And I'm asking you to consider these issues in light of what God says. So whatever God says, I want to be listening. And I want that to to cause my vote to go in a certain direction because I'm ultimately submitted to God. Now, saying that there are many issues, I'm not saying that they're all the same issues. There are certain issues that cause one to move one way or the other. For example, let me just give you an example, because some people take issue with this. They say, ah, you know, you guys are just looking at one or two issues and making your decision based upon that. Well, there is precedent for that. I mean, I, I think there is an argument to me. For example, if a presidential candidate came up and said, if I get elected, I'm going to establish Sharia law. 
or I'm going to establish subjugation of women, or I want to reinstitute slavery because of our labor costs in this country, or I think that prostitution is legal and from 12 up it's legal. That would be a defining issue for me. Those issues would be very defining for me as to where that man stands, and that would move me in one direction or another. And so there are some issues that will float to the top that are of such significance that they will bear greater weight than what his fiscal policy is. And that's an important issue. And so when we do talk about issues of the rights of the unborn, that's a significant issue in God's eyes. God has made clear in Psalm 139 that I knit this child together in my womb. It's a significant issue. I appoint the days to that child, he says. So what does God say about this or or the issues of marriage? But but don't just stop there is what I'm saying. Think about the poverty. God speaks that religion that is pure is caring for the poor, the orphans and the widows. So people, this is a lot of work. You've got to get into these issues. Don't just, in America we tend to be so reductionistic and we just boil it down to A or B. And that's why we get so polarized. These are complex issues. They require a lot of thought, a lot of prayer, and a lot of consideration. And I'm calling you to exercise your stewardship well and do that. Okay, so where are you with the government? Have you rendered the things to Caesar that are Caesar's? Have you considered these things? Do you need to repent of the position that you've had to the government? I mean, have you been praying? Have you been making peace? Have you been seeking to promote and obey? Have you been obeying the government? You, you heard what I read. Let every person be subject to governing authorities. He didn't say, let every person be subject to good, kind, benevolent governing authorities. It was the Roman government. It was a lousy government in terms of its godliness. So, so perhaps you need to repent. Perhaps you need to pray. Okay, well, Jesus doesn't stop there. So that's being a citizen. That's rendering to Caesar, the things that are Caesar's. What's it mean to render to God the things that are God's? Yeah, this is big. Jesus putting this after Caesar is showing that the authority of Caesar has a line in the sand, that he is not divine and he is not fully authoritative. To say render to God the things that are God, he's saying you give back to God. He is ultimately authoritative. He is ultimately powerful. And that, and that the buck stops with God. In fact, in Psalm 99, the psalmist writes, The Lord reigns. Let the nations tremble. God is over all things. Abraham Kuyper was a, um, a politician, a Dutch politician and theologian. And uh, he, in fact, at the uh, opening of his inaugural address at, the, um, at Free University in Amsterdam, he, wrote, he said these words, he said, there is not a square inch, this is, you can just imagine, it's the first, or the uh, very beginning of the 20th century. He says, there is not a square inch in the whole domain of our human existence over which Christ, who is sovereign over all, does not cry, mine. So now God reigns over all through his Son. Everything is under the authority of Christ. Everything, everyone, every beast, every person, every planet, is accountable to God now. doesn't matter whether you're an elected official. doesn't matter whether you're a mother. It doesn't matter whether you're a car salesman. All are accountable to God. They're all accountable to God. 
You're accountable to total allegiance, your lives, not compartmentalizing, but everything you are, everything you do, the gifts that you have, the money that you have, the time that is given you, all those things, you'll be accountable to God. I mean, when Jesus said, render to Caesar the things that are Caesar's, you thought that was challenging. Render to God the things that are God. That is, your total allegiance is his. Think about it. The coin bore an image which indicated ownership. And so Jesus said clearly, if it says Caesar, it belongs to Caesar. If you bear the image of God, then you're God's. Every one of you. It doesn't matter to me whether you're a Christian or not here. You're God's. I, 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 mean, I mean, the Christian here, I would speak to you first, and I would say that when you are to render to God what is God's, I'm saying to you, this compartmentalizing of life, this why I've got God over here, and I've got my business over here, I've got my marriage, I've got my morals, I've got my family, I've got my finances. They're all God's. I mean, they are all His. They belong to Him. You don't have a breath that is due you. You have to render it all back. It's all His. You came in with nothing. You will leave with nothing. You know that. I mean, that's a high call to live as a citizen in this kingdom. If you don't get that right, you'll never be a good citizen. But to the non-Christian here, I, I, would, I would just speak to the true reality of the situation, that you are God's, you, you are owned by God, you're accountable to God. Now, now thankfully, thankfully God in his generosity and kindness has given us Christ to reconcile us to himself, to, to cleanse us of our sin and our shame and our guilt, so that by faith in Christ we can now appeal to God and stand before God cleansed and purified and adopted as a son. But it is by faith. The call for the non-Christian is to repent of his sins and to turn in faith by God so that when you do stand before God, as you will stand before God, that you will stand before him as a son and not as one who cannot pay back what is due. But, but not just do, are we accountable to God. I would say, secondly, that, that, that we are a people now that are international in scope, that, that are broader than our geographical boundaries. The important thing I want you to see is that when Jesus came to establish his kingdom, he said, my kingdom is not of this world. In other words, we who are in the kingdom of God aren't just thinking America. You are not an American first. You're a Christian first. Then you're American. God has placed you in a kingdom that goes beyond your ethnicity or the geographical boundaries. See, you've got to remember the flow of Scripture. The flow of Scripture is that God has established a people in the Old Testament that were determined by ethnicity, as evidenced by circumcision. And that was a preview of what God was going to have, but it wasn't the complete plan. God did not plan to work with ethnicities all the way to the end. We know that. Why? Because the promise in Genesis 12 was that all the nations would be blessed through Abraham. The promise is fulfilled in Revelation where it says every tribe, tongue, and nation, and people are around the throne of God worshiping. And, and so God's plan in Christ, Christ ushered in a new kingdom, a new age, where no longer are we known by our ethnicity, but by our spirituality. And so now it's by faith in Christ. Adopt it into the family of God. It's not by our circumcision or ethnicity. So we are a broader-minded people. We don't think in terms of how am I to be a citizen in this world? How do I render the things to God that are God's? I am broadly for the world. I'm, we're not tribal, we're global. We're thinking more than just what's good for America. What's good for the world? What's good for God's world? 
So it has a much broader impact. And, and then last, I would say this, that to render the things to God that are God's, I would also say that we are called to put our hope in God, particularly in Christ. We are people of the gospel. The gospel is what changes. The governments can't change anybody. The governments can't cure society's ills. They never have been able to. We, we, it's amazing how we hook our wagon to political administrations thinking they're going to change things. They cannot change men. Only the gospel can change. I mean, for the political junkies, you're drinking deeply out of all this stuff. They, they, they won't change. I mean, if you've lived long enough, you see that. It's only the gospel. Our hope is to be never in men or women who lead, but in God. I mean, if you hope in men, you will surely be disappointed. It's hoping in God and the church now, the citizens of the kingdom, Within the citizens of this world, we are now the gospel preachers. Now, next week, I'm going to speak about that in Matthew 5, 13 to 16. How does the church be the church in this world of men? But the warning is this. I don't want you to ignore politics as if they don't matter. They do matter. They just have a temporal mattering. I don't want you to ignore God. I have people saying, I'm really scared about this election. And I'm like, did you hear something about God that I didn't hear? I mean, is, is, God, is God somehow changing? Is he off the throne? Are his purposes now not going to be established? Are his plans now going to be threatened by Democrats or Republicans? I mean, think about it for a minute. You have Romney. He's a Mormon. He's not a Christian. Mormons are not Christians. They deny the unique glory of Christ. Obama, he's a professing Christian. I don't know. It would be hard-pressed for me to believe it. So neither man. Remember this. We don't want to go back. There's no Christian nation. This idea that our nation was Christian, our nation was founded on Christian principles. But I want to remind you that most of the founding fathers were deists. They disbelieved in the uniqueness of Christ. And if you want to go back to the original founding fathers, the average church attendance in 1776 was 17%. Do you want to go back to that? We're well over 50% of this nation. Now, we don't want to go back. We don't want to try to establish a new theocracy. I've just preached to you that we're people of a kingdom, a kingdom that is to come, and it's coming right now. We don't establish theocracies. We live as people of God in the city of man, trusting in God doing our rightful giving to Caesar what is Caesar's, but we render to God what is God. So let me pray for us now. We're going to celebrate the table. I would ask you if you have questions, if you have heartburn. I, I, I don't doubt at all that I've disappointed some of you, but if you, uh, please come up afterwards. Let me pray for us. Father, we thank you that right now you exist in glory and power. You've established the authorities under which we live. And they are your tools. They're your instruments. They are your servants. And they will be responsible to you. But so shall we be responsible. And so, Father, would you give us the grace to be men and women of God, faithfully rendering to our government what is due our government. But, Father, may we be found faithful to render to you the things that are yours, our very lives, all of our beings, everything we have, everything we own. May we start there. We have been 
very unfaithful to you. And yet we're worried about governments. Father God, please do a work through this word in the hearts of your people. May we be bold. May we be, may we be strong. May we be faithful. May we be joyful, regardless of what happens on Tuesday. May we be light. May we be salt. May we influence. May we direct. May we lead people to the gospel that they might be changed. We pray this in the name of Jesus. Amen.